everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today joining me is Bill Dudley. He is a senior research scholar at Princeton University's Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies. He served as the president of the New York Federal Reserve from 2009 to 2018, as well as the vice chairman of the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. He was previously chief U.S. economist at Goldman Sachs. Uh, last time I interviewed Professor Dudley was uh, on April 2nd, uh, 2019, and today is January the 5th, 2021. So it's been almost two years since we last talked. Uh, last time we uh, talked about his career, his life. This time we're going to talk a little bit more about COVID's impacts on the markets, uh, inflation outlook. Well, Professor Dudley, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, as I, as I mentioned, this is our second time doing it. So, so I hope hope I, I, I do a better job than, than last time. So, uh, you did a great job last time. <laughs> no issues. Uh, I, I guess we can start a very, with, with a very broad question. Uh, I've followed uh, many of your recent remarks in, in recent months. You've said repeatedly that the Federal Reserve is very much out of tools right now. The fiscal policy is uh, mostly needed and more needed than ever. Would, would you mind, I guess, giving us a brief overview of what you've seen since March, uh, the, the major actions and the major milestones that, that you think uh, would be nice for our listeners to know about? Well, the Fed has accomplished a lot because they've basically pulled out all the toolkits, uh, all the tools that they have in their toolkit, pretty much, uh, and that's been successful in, you know, supporting economic activity. You can see the rebound in the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy, like housing and autos, uh, which suggests that they've been effective in making monetary policy more supportive to economic growth. Uh, they've also successfully backstopped uh, market function. You know, we had a lot of turmoil in the treasury market and the corporate bond market, high yield debt markets in, in March and April. And the Fed uh, wheeled out a number of uh, special liquidity facilities to backstop those markets. And that's been very successful in restoring market functions. So financial conditions uh, broadly defined, you know, the bond market, the stock market, the availability of credit, the exchange value of the dollar have, are now very accommodative. So the Federal Reserve has accomplished a lot. Uh, I don't think they're, you know, quite out of ammunition in the sense they could do more. They could buy even greater amount of treasury securities, or even greater amount of agency mortgage-backed securities. They could, you know, engage in forward guidance that was even more uh, aggressive. But I think where where they are out of ammunition is in the sense that even if they did more, it wouldn't have much consequence. The efficacy of further monetary policy accommodation at this point is very low. Uh, because the Fed has already accomplished most of what monetary policy can actually accomplish. So I guess maybe what's on people's mind these days uh, right now is the most recent round of fiscal stimulus that was passed a, a couple of weeks ago in, in December. I think it was very much long overdue because Congress, the, the fight, uh, the contentious negotiations between the partisans in Congress, Department of Treasury and the White House and Congress only uh, very recently led to the passing of the second round of stimulus. So I guess you're someone with a lot of experience on the monetary side. Uh, which of the fiscal proposals you think have the greatest potential to work hand in hand with some of the moves that the Fed are, are doing? And also, do you think this is very late at, at this stage? Well, it is late in the sense that the first round of fiscal stimulus, the CARES Act, uh, created a lot of support to small businesses, to households, state and local governments, more modest, uh, extended unemployment compensation benefits. But most of the uh, aspects of the CARES Act ended at the end of July. So we sort of fell off a fiscal cliff at the end of July. Didn't have huge consequences for the economy because the economy was sort of bouncing back as you started to have a reopening of the economy as uh, the, the, the infection rates uh, subsided after that surge that we had. Uh, in, in the spring and, and early summer. Um, so the consequences of the, of the fiscal cliff turned out to be milder than what people anticipated. But as we got into the fall uh, and COVID pandemic reaccelerated, uh, social distancing increased, uh, shutdowns uh, intensified. And so the economy was then facing uh, greater headwinds again. And in contrast to the spring, there wasn't a whole bunch more that the Fed could do to support the economy. So fiscal policy stimulus, I think, was much more, more important at this stage to provide support for households, 
uh, and businesses that through no fault of their own had had their circumstances badly damaged uh, by the consequences of the pandemic. So the fiscal policy I think is you know, very helpful. Uh, the Fed can't do anything about you know, creating income. Only Congress can support incomes of households and businesses. So I think the fiscal stimulus was very appropriate and you know, it's arrived, I think, you know, basically in the, in the nick of time to support the economy at a time that's gonna be very, very difficult. I mean, the pandemic looks like it's continuing to worsen in the short run. Uh, and so the burden on the economy in terms of social distancing, sh shutdowns, lockdowns, restrictions on business activity are gonna be pretty severe over the next few months. And then as we get past that and the vaccines get rolled out and people get vaccinated, then I think, you know, as we get deeper into 2021, we'll see the effects of the pandemic lesson. lesson. The social distancing will, will be able to, to relax that and then the economy will come bouncing back. So you know, the good news now is we're in a much better place than we were, you know, even six months ago because we have visibility on vaccinations that work, uh, and that are going to be rolled out over the next you know, six to nine months. And so I think you know, I'm a lot more optimistic about the economic outlook today than I was even, even, even six months ago. Now, the fiscal package, is, is it perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm not a big fan of handing money to everybody, regardless of whether they need it or not. Would have been nice if there had been you know, more means testing. I mean, I guess I would prefer to have more of the money go to people who actually lost their jobs or had their hours cut back whose incomes, was, uh, incomes were hurt by uh, the pandemic, rather than have it much more broader. I mean, the only people that aren't getting a check are the very high income households. Everyone else is getting a check regardless of whether they you know, need it or not. So I, I don't think it, it, it's a bit indiscriminate, but I still think it's better than uh, no fiscal uh, stimulus package. I guess just a quick uh, overview of what happened in the past uh, eight, nine months is, is that I think at the beginning of the temp pandemic, there was this dominant narrative that there, there was going to be a V-shaped recovery, meaning uh, because this is very much unlike the global uh, financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the fundamentals of the financial markets, the businesses were not hurt. So we'll have a quick bounce back. But what we saw in the subsequent months is were uh, just very pessimistic, I guess, economic outlook data months after months, whether it's uh, jobless claims or, or uh, very sort of detailed micro data on, on business fundamentals and the amount of businesses that are, that are going out of business. So I, I guess, do you see mixed signals that, that are being sent from the, from the data? Well, I, I would say that uh, basically the bounce, the recovery in the economy in the summer and fall was actually stronger and better than what people anticipated. In other words, the, the combination of the fiscal stimulus and the opening up of the economy as you know, the rate of infections plateaued and declined for, for a while, led to a, a recovery in the economy. Um, the bad news, of course, is the second wave of the pandemic. And now we're into that in, you know, in great, uh, with, with, with a great amount of uh, pain uh, and uncertainty about where that leads in the short run. But I think the economic news as, we're, as, as we read it today and the next month and the month after is gonna be pretty, pretty bleak because people are being cautious correctly and the lockdowns and social distancing measures are continuing. And in fact, if anything, are, are, are in increasing. That said, I do think at the end of the day, we are going to have a recovery. It won't be, you know, it'll be, maybe there'll be two Vs, you know, there'll be the up leg in the summer and fall, then that will flatten out as we go through the winter into the spring. And then I think we'll have a second leg of, of the V uh, as we get into the summer and fall and the vaccination process starts to allow us to actually be successful uh, in, in beating back the pandemic. You know, the thing that's changed, I think, is I have a high degree of confidence now that given that the vaccines seem to be highly efficacious, you know, 95% or so success rate, uh, if that's the case, then uh, if we can get people inoculated over the next six to 12 months, then the pandemic should be uh, uh, completely contained as we get go into 2022. I guess one interesting statistic that a lot of people were talking about was that the second quarter of 2020 actually saw the biggest decline ever in, in GDP, but in real GDP, but the, actually the biggest rise in real disposable personal income. And people were using that statistics to, to say it really testifies to the strength of American social safety net. So if you give people unemployment benefit, if you give people paychecks, uh, they will get through this. And I guess 
you were just saying that the summer actually saw things doing pretty well, but the second wave hit and then the Congress didn't release the second wave of the stimulus package and uh, things started to get worse. It, would that be sort of your... Uh, yeah, I think the other thing too is the burden has been borne very unevenly. I mean, if you're a worker uh, that has to, you know, be at, at a particular place of business that you can't work remotely, uh, one, you're exposed to the threat of getting sick. You know, think about people working in meatpacking plants, for example. Uh, uh, second, if you're working in the wrong industry, you know, uh, hospitality and leisure, you probably lost your job. Uh, in contrast, if you're a professional and can work from home, you know, the consequences of the pandemic in terms of your employment and your income have been extremely mild. So, you know, I think one of the things that's, uh, you know, so unfortunate about the pandemic is the burden is falling very unequally uh, and it's falling much more harshly on uh, low and moderate income households and it's falling much more harshly, frankly, on, on people of color uh, because of uh, you know, for health reasons and also because of, of, of where those people tend to be more employed. So this is not, you know, the pandemic is, you know, the incidence of the pandemic has been very uneven across the population and it's tending to, you know, exacerbate, you know, issues of social justice, it's, 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 it's exacerbating income inequality, it's exacerbating wealth inequality. And, you know, I think that's going to be you know, a theme as we come out of the pandemic of what do we do to sort of help the people that have been hurt the most by what's, what's actually happened. Uh, before I dive into uh, the, the part of inequality and some, there are some radical proposals out there about how to uh, help households. I guess before we, we dive into that, I just also want to hear a quick thoughts on inflation because for some reason, everybody's talking about inflation right now. And uh, you uh, on, on December 3rd wrote a, a very recent Bloomberg column about five reasons to worry about faster US inflation. A lot of people are saying we're seeing no signs of broad-based inflation and, and you gave five reasons why we should worry about it. So I guess the first question is, uh, why should we care about inflation? And, and the second is, why, why do you think there could be uh, inflation? Well, first of all, I mean, I'm not worried about it today. I mean, as long as we're in this depressed economic environment, uh, there's not gonna be an inflation problem. I think, you know, where the inflation problem, you know, could arise uh, is when the economy bounces back. Uh, and there's a lot of demand for uh, activities uh, that might be actually in short supply. I mean, you know, I think that a lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels, a lot of other uh, hospitality and leisure establishments uh, have gone under. And once the pandemic's over, I would imagine there's gonna be a surge of demand for those, uh, the, those activities. Uh, and there'll probably be a shortage of supply. And so prices will probably firm as, as, as people use price to ratchet down demand to, to meet supply. The second issue is really much more of a longer term issue, which is really the change in the Fed's monetary policy regime. The Fed in the past has said that regardless of what inflation has been you know, last year, last decade, uh, we want to hit 2% inflation going forward. And now the Fed has changed. The Fed now has a policy that uh, we want to make up for past shortfalls of inflation by having inflation overshoot our 2% objective. And that's a very, very uh, substantive monetary policy change because it basically means that the Fed is going to wait before they actually tighten monetary policy until they see inflation get to 2%, are confident that inflation is going to rise above 2% for a sustainable period of time, and are confident that the economy is actually at full employment. So think about the old regime. The Federal Reserve started to tighten monetary policy before we got to full employment. The idea was to get to a neutral monetary policy right about the same time that we got the full employment and inflation got to 2%. Now the Fed's basically saying, we're not even gonna to start to tighten monetary policy until we get to 2% inflation. And, and, and we're highly confident that inflation is gonna go above 2%, which implies that, that the unemployment rate will be below what's sustainable over the long run. So this is a very big change in monetary policy. And it means that the economy will be more inflation prone going forward if the Federal Reserve is successful in, in driving the economy to full employment. I guess what you just talked about is the Fed's uh, regime switch to average inflation targeting. Uh, right. A lot of people have been talk, talking about it before it even happened. I guess uh, just to go back to first principles, uh, why do we care about, I guess, this idea of 
full employment, the, the natural rate of interest, the natural rate of employment, and, and, and how did we come to this uh, 2% target, you know, many, many years ago, because for a lot of people, they, they say, uh, how, how does Fed even know those, those numbers? How, how are they making up those numbers so that they, they're just conducting monetary policy? Well, let's first turn to the 2% inflation target. I mean, I think the 2% inflation target was, uh, you know, established because a little bit of inflation was viewed as, you know, a good lubricant for the efficient functioning of the economy. Uh, it's very hard to cut people's nominal wages. Uh, so if you can't cut people's nominal wages and you have 0% inflation, then it's hard for relative labor rates to, to adjust. Number two, if you have very, very, very low inflation, inflation were actually zero, then the Fed Reserve doesn't have much room to cut interest rates when you go into recession. So imagine if you end the business cycle at 0% inflation, then you have a recession. If nominal short-term interest rates are only 2 to 3%, there's not a lot of room for the Fed to engage in a more stimulative monetary policy. So there's been a pretty strong global consensus that a, a, a little bit of inflation uh, is not a bad thing. Uh, when inflation though gets much north of 2%, then it starts to affect people's behaviors, you know, their savings behavior, their investment behavior. And then that starts to uh, distort the resource allocation. And so as you climb above 2%, there's a general view that the inflation's, you know, the benefits of a little bit of inflation start to be uh, lost uh, and the consequences of more inflation uh, Make, make it harder to actually have a you know, stable uh, stable economy. So I think there, there is a pretty strong consensus that a little bit of inflation is, is a good thing, uh, not, not a bad thing. Now, the reason why the Fed is making the shift is the Fed is worried that because they've underperformed inflation for so long, they haven't been able to hit the 2% objective. Inflation's averaged below 2% pretty much every year for the la over the last decade. They're worried that as a consequence of that, inflation expectations are starting to become unanchored and are starting to decline. If inflation expectations decline, that is a de facto tightening of monetary policy. Uh, you know, if, if you expect inflation to be 1% over the next 10 years rather than 2% over the next 10 years, then that means that interest rates today are higher uh, in an inflation adjusted sense than they were before. So the Fed's change is because they're worried that inflation expectations uh, could become unanchored to the downside. And they're worried if that were to happen, the U.S. could find themselves in a situation like Japan, very low inflation expectations, short-term interest rates pinned at zero, unable to get uh, a stimulative monetary policy to support the economy. So the change is to basically uh, underpin inflation expectations. And that makes some sense given the Fed's performance over the last decade. The consequence, the negative part of the story is that if you, you, know, you get this benefit of better supporting inflation expectations, the downside is when you actually implement this policy and are successful in implementing this policy, you're actually gonna get more inflation. And the Fed's gonna have to tighten policy more aggressively uh, when they get to the end of the business cycle and they see inflation, because inflation is not gonna be at 2%, it's gonna be above 2% and the unemployment rate is gonna be below the level that's sustainable over the long run. So the Federal Reserve is going to have to tighten monetary policy by more. And so as a consequence, the risk of recession uh, will be higher. So think of it as monetary policy having more of a start-stop aspect to it. You have long periods where the Fed is very accommodative, followed by more aggressive top monetary policy tightenings and recessions. And benefit of that is you'll have better anchored inflation expectations, but the consequences, you'll have more volatility in terms of both monetary policy and the real economy. It's like everything else, you know, you, you know, you, there's no free lunch. Uh, if you, you do something to get a benefit, there's a cost and you're sort of making a trade-off here. And, you know, the, the benefit is near term, uh, you're better anchoring inflation expectations. The cost is down the road, uh, but there is a cost. Uh, so you said there is a cost, but I guess one uh, naive pushback or, or not so naive pushback a lot of people have been saying is, is that, uh, what we've observed over the past 10 years or so is that unemployment had kept going down, but we still saw the interest rate kept going down. We still saw no sign of inflation. So uh, there's just no inflation, or at least there's no sign of inflation. We shouldn't worry about inflation. And the fact the Fed is still worried about inflation is hindering its capability from uh, doing more things. It, 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 it always has this lingering worry or shadow of you know overheating the economy. We don't, we don't want things to go to... to, to I don't think they're so worried about that uh, anymore. anymore. I, I, would, I, I, would, I would view that the Fed's monetary policy today is 
you know, designed to generate a strong recovery, designed to push the unemployment rate down. The Fed has basically said, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna push the unemployment rate until we're highly confident that we're at or below our full employment. So they've also changed their uh, employment objective. You know, before they were trying to sort yeah. of arrive at full employment, now they wanna be highly confident that they're at full employment before they even start to tighten monetary policy. So, you know, the Fed is basically more, you know, they're putting more weight on the employment side of the ledger rather than the inflation side of the ledger, which is a, which is a big change. Now, I mean, the, you know, as you, as, you, as you rightly point out, you know, the, the, this idea of full employment is, you know, we don't really know where the level of full employment is. And the way we, you know, discern where full employment is, is we watch inflation. Uh, you want to push the unemployment rate as low as you can subject to not having an inflation problem, because you certainly don't want to keep people out of work just because you're worried about some uh, you know, prospective inflation problem that doesn't actually materialize. What was unusual in the last cycle was that it turned out that the unemployment rate could go lower without an inflation consequence than what the Fed thought. You know, if you, if you look back at the Fed's projections back in you know, 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, the, the, the full employment rate was well above the three and a half unemployment rate that we actually got to. So I think what, you know, in my mind, what's changed is, 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 is really two things. Number one, because inflation expectations are so well anchored, uh, the Phillips curve is very flat. In other words, the relationship between the unemployment rate and, and future changes in inflation is quite mild because inflation expectations are really important driver of inflation, not just the level of resource utilization. So that's the first thing that I think is a, a, a really important change. Uh, and the second thing is we're, you know, we're, we, we found out that we could go lower uh, than we thought before we got to full employment. I don't think that the whole Phillips curve framework is broken. Um, you know, I, I do believe that at the end of the day, inflation is about pressure on resources. Uh, if you don't believe that there's a Phillips curve, the relationship between the labor market and, and inflation, then you don't really actually have a very good model of inflation because then you're basically saying inflation depends on inflation expectations. And then the question is, well, what the heck does inflation expectations depend on? You know, there has to be a linkage back to the, to the real economy. So I, I think that the Phillips curve, you know, it's weaker. Uh, the full employment rate is lower. Uh, those are both good things. Uh, that, those are good developments. But I don't think it's completely broken. I think if the Fed pushes the economy to a high enough rate of resource utilization, we will get inflation again. And what the, what the Fed has told us is that they're determined to do that this time. They're not going to stop uh, uh, the economic expansion until they actually until they actually drive inflation above two percent. That's different. Uh, last cycle, the Fed started to tighten even before we got to two percent inflation, even before we got to full employment. So this cycle is going to be very different than the last cycle. I guess one other question would be: a lot of economists and central bankers are saying the idea that inflation. Uh, is a monetary phenomenon, not, not monetary policy phenomena, has largely stopped working since 2012 or so. So by monetary policy phenomenon, they mean uh, determined largely through setting interest rates and inflation targeting by the central bank. And that mechanism has been somewhat broken in, in, the, in the past few years. Uh, do, do you uh, agree with, with that? Or, or in other words, so because you, you, you just said inflation is largely dependent on inflation expectation now, but I think they're, they're even saying it, we just don't really know anymore. Well, the Fed has to be able to drive the economy to full employment. So if the Fed doesn't have sufficient monetary policy stimulus uh, in, in place to push the economy to full employment, you're not going to have an inflation problem. So I, I, so I think that's the, that's the issue. And what happened in the last cycle was one, you had fiscal restraint early in the cycle, which retarded the, the rate of recovery from following the recession. Uh, and two, uh, the Fed was just wrong about what full employment was. The Fed you know, started to tighten sooner than what they should have if they'd, if they'd known what they know uh, today. But that doesn't mean that monetary policy won't work next time uh, to drive the economy uh, to full employment. Now, obviously, you know, what happens on fiscal policy is also important. I mean, the other change I think that's been in the you know, economic orthodoxy is people are now much more uh, willing to use fiscal policy uh, to, support to support the economy. Now, you know, that's, that's changed, I think, pretty broadly among economists because real interest rates, the inflation-adjusted interest rate now is much lower than it was in the past. So the cost of having more debt on your balance sheet, on your government balance sheet is much lower than in the past. Now, 
that's going to be you know, complicated by a Biden administration potentially dealing with, uh, potentially, we'll see, a, a Republican-controlled Senate. We'll know that in the next you know, 48 hours or so. Um, because obviously, if, if the Senate is uh, still controlled by the Republicans, the ability of Biden to get fiscal policy stimulus through will be probably pretty much constrained. As you know, the Republicans are you know, not so uh, enamored with fiscal stimulus when the Democrats uh, are in control of the presidency, uh, but much more enamored of fiscal stimulus when they're controlling the presidency. That seems to be the, the track record. Uh so th this might be getting into a somewhat of a I wouldn't say conspiracy territory, but so, so, some of my friends when I were talking, they were saying uh, central banks seem to always slightly overshoot inflation expectations. Uh, I guess what we observe from the, the European Central Bank is the European Central Bank's uh, inflation expectations have been consistently too high or higher than what would actually happen. And I guess they were saying the one main reason could be to encourage spending in the present and avoid exacerbating this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of deflation. Because uh, if, a, if, if you, uh, if the central bank says we're going to have a very low inflation rate projection, consumers will have less incentive to spend uh, since they'll expect prices to drop in the future and companies will cut prices to encourage consumers to spend. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, of deflation. So, so do you uh, I'm not saying that the central bankers get together and say, oh, we think this is going to be 2%, but we say it's 2.5% or something. But, uh, but in other words, the, the bigger question here seems to be a lot of people view monetary policy has been somehow not working in the, in the past 10 years. Do, do you get that sense? That, well, that I, I think it's too strong to say it hasn't been working. I mean, if you look at where the U.S. was pre-COVID, it was in a pretty good place, right? You had the unemployment rate at 3.5%. You had a very long-lived expansion. You know, inflation was a little bit below the Fed's 2% objective, but not dramatically so. I mean, the Fed would have been very happy to stay where we were in February uh, indefinitely. So I would actually argue that was a pretty good economic performance and one that the Fed would have been happy to sign up for over the next, you know, few decades. And then, of course, COVID uh, intervened. You know, the, you know, the issue here is really if you, if you have a recession that pushes inflation down and then that, the risk is that that decline in inflation feeds through into inflation expectations, which makes it harder for the Fed to stimulate the economy. Uh, and that's where fiscal policy comes in. Uh, you know, the Fed has been very clear that there's only so much they can do and that they need support from the fiscal side for income. And fortunately, in, in this cycle, because COVID is sort of a common enemy that everybody agrees on, the fiscal policy support has been forthcoming. Uh, much more readily and, and quickly than what we saw during the great financial crisis, where the fiscal stimulus arrived very late, and then it was sort of pulled away, you know, prematurely, you know, in 2010, 11, and 12. Uh, Professor Dudley, I guess maybe we could veer into the territory of some more fundamental questions, I guess, about central banking even, because... Um, uh, a very broad question would be, what is the role of central banks and, and how has that really evolved in the time of COVID? Because we saw from the Paul Volcker period uh, when the Federal Reserve independently took a firm stance on hyperinflation and acted against many electoral interests. We saw uh, during the great moderation period, Alan Greenspan, that the central bankers uh, actively try to, a lot of people criticize saying, they actively try to erase volatility from the markets. We, we hear a lot of critiques from public intellectuals to say that um, central banks should try to minimize harm rather than trying to come up with policies with unintended side effects. So there are all kinds of debates about uh, uh, central banks role. And very recently people are, there are concerns of saying, oh, are, are central banks still independent? Even though that concern seems to be largely overblown because uh, central banks are just working with the treasury to help figure out COVID. That doesn't mean that the central bank is not independent anymore, but there's just all kinds of uh, theories and hypotheses about what central bank is supposed to do during crisis time, during peacetime. Uh, what's your view on, on this? Well, look, I, at the end of the day, the Fed takes its uh, guidance of what its objectives are from Congress. Congress sets the objectives and the Congress has basically said the Fed's objective is maximum employment uh, and price stability. And that's what the Fed is supposed to try to achieve. I think what's changed over the last you know, dozen years or so is the notion that financial stability is an important aspect of this as well. You can't achieve your objectives of uh, maximum sustainable employment and price stability if you have financial instability, because if the financial system doesn't work well, 
then that will harm economic activity. And so you saw during the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve intervened uh, aggressively to, to backstop uh, financial markets and support uh, financial market conditions. And you saw that again uh, with the COVID pandemic where the Fed uh, rolled out a whole series of special liquidity facilities uh, in the spring to support market function. So I think that's the new piece, the Federal Reserve intervening to support market function to prevent financial instability. And I think you know, the, the interesting question is, is gonna be, you know, does this create its own set of problems in terms of moral hazard? You know, in other words, if you know the Federal Reserve is always gonna to ride to the rescue when the private sector you know, engages in excess, is that gonna encourage the private sector to engage in more excess. And so I think that's something that needs to be, be looked at. Another aspect that I think the Federal Reserve is gonna to have to focus on is, you know, what we did a lot of regulatory reform post the great financial crisis. You know, what worked, what didn't work? What are the lessons of, of COVID? And I think what the lessons of COVID to me are that the banking reforms work quite well. In other words, we required banks to hold more capital, more liquidity. We stress tested bank capital. We put limits on their ability to distribute capital to their shareholder during a period of great uncertainty. And as a consequence of that, the confidence in the banking system is still very, very high despite a very you know, difficult uh, economic set of circumstances. So the banking system, I think, has held up very well uh, through the pandemic. What hasn't held up so well is the non-bank financial system. The Federal Reserve had to intervene to support the treasury market, the corporate bond market, support the state and local governments, um, support market function, bail out uh, money market mutual funds again, uh, mortgage REITs again. And so I think that we need to look a little bit more about uh, what kind of financial stability risk do we have in the non-bank financial sector. And in the United States, that's very, very large part of the financial system. So that's really, I think, the lesson of, of this, uh, of, the, of the COVID crisis uh, from, a, from a regulatory perspective. How do you get the non-bank portion of the financial se sector uh, regulated properly so you don't have a moral hazard problem uh, in, in that area? Precisely as you just mentioned, because you, you actually wrote this article in Bloomberg in June, and you mentioned how the Fed's COVID rescue response had second-order consequences of bailing out certain leveraged hedge funds and investors in mortgage-backed securities. And this created the concern of moral hazard, precisely as you uh, explained, since the investors don't feel they have the downside anymore. But do you feel like almost, uh, we're almost entering, entering a cycle that, that it's hard to get out of? So in other words, we have a crisis and we, we say, oh, we shouldn't, uh, don't worry too much about moral hazard, but there is some moral hazard, but we couldn't do everything perfectly. So we, we have to support the market. So it, it seems that we, we can't get out of this. Well, in the middle of the crisis, you probably don't want to worry too much about moral you don't want to say, let the whole city burn down because that'll teach everybody a lesson. That's not a lesson that you want to teach in the middle of the crisis. I think what you want to do, though, is if you do engage in extraordinary interventions that help you know, different sectors of the financial system, there needs to be a quid quo quo for that during peacetime. So you need to sort of ask yourself the question, why do these areas get in trouble? What sort of restraints can we put on them so they don't get in trouble next time? Uh, you know, so limits on uh, leverage, uh, more disclosure of, you know, their positions. Um, you could also, you know, make institutional changes that provided, uh, you know, better backstops uh, for those uh, regimes. I mean, we did set up the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, was established by the Dodd-Frank Act, to sort of deal with, you know, systemic risks outside of the core banking system. And I think the reality is the Financial Stability Oversight Council has not been very effective in dealing with risks that arise uh, outside of the core banking system. So I think we need to take another look at how can we make the Financial Stability Oversight Council's work more effective. Uh, but this is not to say that we should teach people a lesson during this. No, I think in the middle of the middle of the crisis, I mean, you don't want people who, you know, if people behave badly and their failure causes people who didn't behave badly, great pain and horrible consequence, you don't want to have people that you know are responsible to, to, to just to teach them a lesson. If, it, if it's going to damage, you know, people that are completely innocent of uh, you know of the behavior. So in the middle of the crisis, moral hazard is you know it'd be fine if you could deal with moral hazard in a very uh, 
you know, uh, controlled way, that just the people who uh, behave badly get punished. But in the middle of a financial crisis, it's very hard to just punish people who misbehave. And that's really why, you know, at the end of the day, uh, in the crisis, uh, you know, the, the, all the pressure is uh, to prevent the crisis from getting worse. And so that requires, you know, more aggressive uh, intervention. Now, the important thing, though, is remember, once you actually have the recovery and you're out of the crisis, remember, okay, what went wrong? What do we have to do? Let's fix it so it doesn't happen next time. And, you know, coming out of the great financial crisis, there were a lot of weaknesses that were revealed by the great financial crisis. And a lot of those weaknesses were, uh, in fact, addressed. Um, money market mutual fund reform, it took a long time for it to take place, but it's uh, the money market mutual fund sector is a lot stronger today than it was back in uh, 2008. Uh, we had reform of uh, the over-the-counter derivatives market, which was a real source of uh, systemic uh, contagion uh, during the great financial crisis. Lots of changes made to the derivatives market to mandate central clearing. So last crisis, you know, we, we learned a bunch of lessons about those areas in the financial system that were weak that needed to be shored up. We need to make the same study of this cycle and determine what needs to be shored up so we don't have to bail them out in, in the next cycle. I see. I guess a lot of investors and, and people look at this and they say stock markets just go up no matter what. And a large reason of why it goes up no matter what is not, not just because it's disconnected from the main street economy, but also just because the Federal Reserve is always out there to-, to, to Well, yeah, I mean, you know, people talk about the stock market put. I mean, there isn't, there isn't. Uh, I mean, there is in the sense that if the stock market goes down a lot and that hurts the economy, then the Fed cares about the fact that the economy is gonna be hurt. And so the Federal Reserve is gonna change monetary policy. But there isn't a, a stock market put in the, in, in the sense that if the stock market goes down, you know, moderate amount, and the Fed doesn't think the consequences for the real economy are significant, then the Federal Reserve doesn't care about the stock market. Now, what happened in you know, the spring was the declines in the market were really you know, a consequence of the sudden stop of the economy. And so the Fed was responding not because the stock market declined, but because the economy had stopped. You know, the, as, you as you talked about earlier, the, the, the steepest decline in real GDP ever in a, in a single quarter happened in the, in the second quarter of, of 2020. So the Fed, of course, the Federal Reserve was gonna intervene in response to the very weak economy. And of course that intervention was gonna work through its effect on financial markets and financial market conditions. You know, right now, I mean, I think the stock market is basically being supported by two things. Number one, the very low level of, of, of interest rates uh, both short-term and long-term rates, supported by the Fed's uh, quantitative easing program of buying $80 billion of treasury securities a month and $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities a month, which the Federal Reserve has said that they're going to continue for uh, some time to come. And so with interest rates so low, uh, that makes stocks more attractive relative to bonds. And second, uh, the, the recovery isn't yet at hand. And so the stock market hasn't had to contemplate yet the Federal Reserve starting to back away from quantitative easing uh, to provide less support to the bond market for bond yields starting to go up. And I think, you know, once, bond, once the bond market is sort of left, you know, less uh, tended to by the Fed and bond yields start to rise, then the stock market will have to think about the competition from the bond market that it doesn't really have to think about today. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I think that, you know, the stock market on one hand, it's completely understandable why the stock market is doing well. Uh, the outlook for recovery looking be, beyond the next three to six months is quite good. And interest rates are very low and the Federal Reserve is very friendly. So that's all very positive for the stock market. The negative for the stock market is this is not going to last indefinitely. The level of yields that we have with 10-year Treasury note yields below 1%. That's not sustainable in the medium term. And so the stock market eventually is going to have more competition. The other thing that I think the stock market is not really discounting is, you know, we have a pretty uh, dysfunctional uh, political system right now. And I don't think, you know, when I look at that, I look at that as part of, you know, the environment in which the stock market exists. And I would argue that the dysfunction of the political system that we have right now should be something that weighs on the stock market a little more than it has weighed on the stock market up to now. Just one person's opinion. 
Professor Dudley, we should really talk about this last part about the political dysfunction because a lot of people saw the Federal Reserve's uh, actions in the past eight months or so, and it says the Fed is really mitigating inaction from the fiscal side in, in some sense. Uh, it, it is not just mitigating the effects of the public health uh, policy, but also uh, because of the political gridlock, because so much, so little could, could, could be done, uh, they're not just taking everything from the fiscal side as a given and then enacting monetary policy per se, uh, but, but they're actually playing an even a more active role. We, we, not, nothing bad or fundamentally wrong with that, but, but it seems that the Fed would have to be a little bit more active. And therefore, there are people like modern monetary theorists have finally brought out the, the phrase that they are saying the Fed should be even more active, directly monetizing more debt and take on a more active role in, in solving climate change or something, because those are the problems that seems that the political dysfunction cannot solve. Well, I think the Federal Reserve's view is that we can be very aggressive with monetary policy and supporting the economy, but we really shouldn't go over the line where monetary policy shifts over into fiscal policy, where we actually start you know, allocating resources and potentially losing money. You know, so when the Fed sets up all its special liquidity facilities, it does so with controls in place to try to ensure that you know, the Fed doesn't lose a lot of money. And, and in the case of many of the special liquidity facilities, they're actually backstopped explicitly uh, by treasury money. So the treasury absor absorbs the losses. The Fed doesn't want to engage in fiscal policy. They want to engage uh, in monetary policy. I think generally the Federal Reserve takes the world as it is. I mean, the Fed has been very uh, vocal about why they thought another round of fiscal stimulus was really important. Uh, they were implicitly saying that there's a limit to what monetary policy can actually accomplish. But you know, if fiscal policy doesn't arrive, uh, then, the, then that puts more pressure on the Fed Reserve to do more on the monetary policy side. The Fed doesn't you know, basically fold its hands and say, well, if you're not gonna do fiscal policy, then we're not gonna do monetary policy. You know, the Fed basically takes the world as it is in terms of how it conducts monetary policy. And I think that's you know, appropriate. Uh, I also think it's appropriate though for the Fed to point out when monetary policy is reaching the limits of its effectiveness, point that out and, and, and point the finger for the need to fis for fiscal policy stimulus. And Chair Powell has been uh, very vocal and persistent about that, which I think was very appropriate. Uh, so you uh, briefly mentioned uh, maybe 20 minutes ago in the interview that the fiscal orthodoxy, the economic orthodoxy has shifted, meaning instead of worrying about rising federal debt burdens, we are now seeing a much uh, greater willingness to uh, take on some some greater deficit and to to support the economy uh, to stimulate the economy. A lot of people who are in the realm of supporting modern monetary theory would be say the tide is turning and they're just not saying it and they're just not seeing it yet. But the tide is turning and, and we're gonna eventually be into a future where it's gonna be persistently low interest rate, persistently low inflation uh, and the, the Fed could be gradually taking on slightly more aggressive actions without really having a bigger impact on the economy um, per se. Well, I'm not a big uh, proponent of modern monetary theory. I think that uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, you, if you engage in fiscal policy without sort of any sort of limits, uh, eventually you're gonna either have an inflation problem or you're gonna have a loss of confidence in the US as a reserve currency, and the dollar is gonna depreciate very sharply and you're gonna have an inflation problem. So, you know, there is no, you know, as you know, there's no free lunch in economics. So if you, you know, engage in a massive fiscal policy with the notion that there's not gonna be any negative consequence for inflation, regardless of how, you know, extreme that is, I think that's just not, Incredible. And now the monetary, modern monetary policy theories say, well, just do it until you have an inflation problem and then all of a sudden pull back uh, on the fiscal policy stimulus. And I think the, the problem with, for that is how adept are we at using monetary uh, fiscal policy uh, you know, in terms of you know, uh, guiding the business cycle? Fiscal policy is a very blunt tool. It's very uh, constrained by the political process. Fiscal policy doesn't arrive on time, typically doesn't arrive in the right magnitude or composition. Um, you know, if I would, I would sort of turn things on their head and say, what I'd like to see in terms of fiscal policy is not, you know, just uh, Fed monetizing the debt. 
I'd like to see much more powerful automatic fiscal stabilizers in place so that when the economy is weak, uh, there's a lot of fiscal support that comes to the economy automatically. So you can imagine a situation where if the unemployment rate rose above, say, 5%, automatically unemployment compensation benefits were extended, uh, payroll taxes were cut. If you had something like that that arrived automatically, I think it would be very effective in two, two regards. Number one, the fiscal policy would arrive more quickly. Uh, two, people would be more certain that it was going to arrive. And because they were more certain that it was going to arrive, they'd be more confident about the economic outlook. And therefore, they would feel less need to cut back and protect themselves from a bad economic environment. So having you know, much more greater automatic fiscal stabilizers would be a really great thing to have. Now, the reason why we're probably not going to get that uh, is that, one, there's strong political disagreement on between the Democrats and the Republicans on how that would work. But two, there's also a, a political reality. Politicians like to hand out fiscal policy stimulus. And if you make it automatic, uh, they don't have the ability to hand out those, 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 those fiscal uh, goodies anymore. But I think that if we had a, a, a automatic, you know, stronger automatic fiscal stabilizers, that would, that would stand the US in, in good stead. So the automatic stabilizers would really be coming from the fiscal side, as, as you mentioned, yes. the unemployment rate uh, yes. hit at, at some. So I guess, again, does this go back to fiscal policy or, or at least the executive congressional branch of, of, the, of the government and say they need to do more for, for the American Well, it, goes, it comes back to fiscal policy when monetary policy is constrained by zero lower bound for interest rates and constrained by how accommodative they can make financial conditions by their open market uh, you know, interventions, quantitative easing, special liquidity facilities, forward guidance. I mean, the Federal Reserve has been very aggressive in terms of making monetary policy you know, extraordinarily accommodative. Is that sufficient to push the economy today to full employment? No, uh, because of COVID. Uh, and, and will it be sufficient to push the economy to full employment even six months or 12 months from now? Probably not. Uh, but the Federal Reserve is definitely doing what it can do. And if monetary policy is not sufficient, then, that's, then that is what says, suggests that you need more fiscal policy stimulus. So fiscal policy, I think, is a very useful tool uh, in recession uh, when there are limits on the ability of monetary policy to fully achieve its, its objectives. But you want to be careful because you want to ha actually have that room uh, so fiscal policy can be used aggressively in recession. And that means that during uh, economic expansions uh, as they occur, you want to actually sort of pull back on that fiscal policy stimulus so you actually have uh, more fiscal room. Is there any country in the world that you think is, is is a good example of doing that or, or, or is in general doing a better job in terms of, I guess, fiscal monetary coordination or, or monetary policy in the US? Because uh, I think some people are saying that Australia does yield curve control, very direct ways of yield curve control, and that is very effective and, and such and so on. Do, the ECB well, you, or Well, you could broadly argue that a parliamentary form of government may work a little bit better in the sense that you avoid this sort of gridlock on the fiscal side, right? You have a parliamentary system, somebody wins the election and they get to put their program into place. Uh, and so you don't have that kind of situation where there's just a block to policy action, even though people recognize policy action uh, is needed. Um, in terms of yield curve control, I mean, look, I think, you know, Australians have had a great track record. I mean, they had an extraordinarily long lived business expansion. You know, uh, so you have to say that they've been pretty successful in terms of their monetary policy uh, and fiscal regime. They've been helped, of course, by you know the strength of China uh, and the consequence of Chinese demand for Australian goods and services, and also the fact that uh, you know they have a higher rate of uh, in migration and population growth, which also helps to support the economy. But I, I mean, I would give the Australians very high marks in terms of you know sort of macroeconomic performance over the last few decades. So uh, there was a working paper from you, Chicago. I, you probably, I don't know if you read it. It's called 50 Shades of QE, of Quantitative Easing, Conflicts of Interest in Economic Research. And it, it basically, it came out this summer, it, it compared the research findings of central bank researchers and academic economists <clears throat> regarding the macroeconomic effects of quantitative easing programs. We, we, we 
uh, briefly mentioned it, but we haven't really touched on QE. I guess the, the, the paper was saying that central bank papers often report large effects of QE on output inflation. And they're also more likely to report significant effects of QE on output and use more positive language in the abstract. So um, in, in some sense, um, it, it reveals the, the substantial involvement of bank management in, in research production. And, and uh, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on this paper and what it reveals. Well, I mean, look, everybody is uh, you know, shaped by the, you know, you know, the environment of where they work. And so could there be some implicit bias that seeps into central banker researchers to want to, want to find the central bank policy successful as opposed to unsuccessful. Um, you know, that wouldn't you know, surprise me that, 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 that there's some implicit bias uh, to look for success as opposed to uh, look for failure. Um, you know, the central bank at the end of the day wants to be reassuring uh, to the population that we actually have tools that work as opposed to you know, unreassuring that oh, the tools that we thought worked don't work very well. So, you know, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything done being done here deliberately to, you know, uh, to, to, to cover up, uh, you know, that, there, that, the, that there's a, that the central bankers think it doesn't work, but they're claiming that it does. I think it's just that, you know, it's, you know, it's probably, a, you know, it could, could be a form of implicit bias that's, uh, you know, factoring in where people actually uh, work and and you know I, I I I don't I don't think my own my own read on quantitative easing is that it actually has uh, been a successful tool of monetary policy uh, because it has uh, pushed down long dated yields and pushed people uh, into riskier assets and that's made financial conditions more accommodative so I do believe that quantitative easing uh, is a means of making monetary policy easier. But that said, there are limits to you know, the efficacy of quantitative easing. It's not like if the Fed doubled the amount of quantitative easing that they're doing today, that, that would have a huge consequences for the economy. I think the, we're, we're rapidly at, at the point of very clearly diminishing returns to quantitative easing. So I wouldn't think that you know, increasing quantitative easing today would have much of an effect on economic activity. So I think, you know, so, you know, I think that you know, it, it, it has an effect, it's in the right direction. Uh, it's probably not, you know, as powerful maybe as some people uh, think. I, I guess just to slightly to push you on that a little bit, Professor Dudley, uh, I know we are almost uh, at the end mark year, uh, hour mark for our interview, but it seems that a lot of people are saying that central banks are very reluctant to let certain uh, of their certain parts of their theories or, or framework go. For, for example, people say uh, central banks are very reluctant to let the monetary theory of inflation go. Uh, I, I think it was the podcast I, I listened to by Ian McFarlane, who was the uh, governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, and, and he was saying, it, it's almost it seems to be a tautology that once you accept the assumption, you have to accept the conclusion. But how did we really know that inflation was a monetary policy phenomenon in, in the first place? And he was saying that some people criticized the, the Federal Reserve for doing that. And modern monetary theory was another example of su such a rise of radical criticism of a central bank's uh, function or role in the society. So, so when you view those criticisms, I, I, how do you think of them? Uh, when do you think it is okay or acceptable for, for the central bank to Federal Reserve to say, we really got this part of our policy reaction function or, or uh, objective I think you need or... to be really, you know, self-critical <laughs> in your evaluation of, you know, what's actually worked and what hasn't worked. Uh, you know, in some ways, I'm, I'm a critic of certain aspects of monetary policy. I'm not a big believer in the Taylor rule, uh, which has been the shrine as a guide to determine what level of short-term interest rates that you should set. I don't like the Taylor rule because it's not forward looking. It's just taking a snapshot of the economy where it is today. I don't like the Taylor rule because it doesn't incorporate what's happening to financial market conditions, which I think are a hugely important aspect of the transmission mechanism of monetary policy to the real economy. So, you know, if you go back to the look at the FOMC transcripts that have been published uh, uh, to date, uh, you'll see me, uh, you know, basically trying to push very strongly against the wisdom of the Taylor rule as a a strong guide uh, to monetary policy. So I think, you know, you definitely need to question, you know, whether the tools uh, are well 
set up relative to the current environment. I mean, you know, over time, the financial system changes, the environment changes, and you need to make sure that the regime you have in place is, is you know, well suited for that time. And I think, you know, that's what the Federal Reserve has essentially been doing in terms of changing their inflation target to average inflation target. They basically have said that, okay, uh, we didn't realize that we'd have this problem of undershooting inflation persistently. We didn't realize that this would cause inflation expectations to become unanchored to the downside. Now we do. And because of that, we're going to scrap our old regime of trying to always hit 2% inflation on uh, each, each time, regardless of what happened to inflation in the past. Now we're going to try to hit inflation 2% on average. So I think that's a good example of the Federal Reserve, you know, learning uh, by the fact that they are now in a, in a new regime. And the Fed certainly learned a lot through the financial crisis. I mean, you look at the response to the COVID pandemic, the reason why it was so powerful and so effective from the Fed is because this whole set of tools had been developed during the financial crisis and the Federal Reserve knew uh, how they would work and how they would be perceived by people uh, in business and, and households. And so we're able to engage in these uh, actions much, much more rapid. I mean, if you look at the a great financial crisis, you know, we didn't get to, you know, open-ended uh, liquidity programs until after Lehman Brothers failed and after the TARP legislation was passed in October of 2008, really deep into the financial crisis. This time we got pretty much everything from the Fed, you know, by the, you know, pretty much by the end of March, you know, the first month or two of when the pandemic was really coming to the fore in the United States. So I think the Fed has learned a lot about, uh, you know, its toolkit and how monetary policy can be effective I think they've learned a lot about how important it is to support market function, uh, especially in a, in, a, in a financial system where the banking system, you know, is it, accounts for a relatively small share of intermediation activity between borrowers and savers. We have a very big non-bank financial system in the United States, and monetary policy needs to, to recognize that. Professor Dudley, I guess based on your experience uh, working at the Fed for many years, but also working at Goldman Sachs for many years, uh, how do you think the Federal Reserve or the policymaking uh, uh, apparatus could communicate its intentions or, or thinking better to the general public? And by general public, I literally mean the, the general public because uh, you have modern monetary theorists, I mean, like Stephanie Kelton, who read this book, like The Deficit Myth. Uh, I, I read the book in, in like one afternoon because there was no equations, there was not that much history going into this. And an academic economist criticized it to be saying, you don't, you don't have models, you, you're not explaining things well, but it's selling, I don't know, millions, hundreds of thousands of copies to, to a lot of people. And, and people, perhaps you could criticize them to be drawing simple correlations or, or naive empiricism. Uh, but, but you have people without background like you or the central bank training or, or knowing the nitty gritty of Taylor rule and they observe certain phenomena and they say, this is, this is wrong or this is not working and this is the right way to go. And, and that's, that seems to be what's, what's happening today, right? No, it's really uh, challenging for the central bankers because, you know, what they're dealing with is a pretty, you know, obscure and technical subject from the point perspective of the average household or business person. Uh, and so explaining what they're doing uh, and why they're doing it is, is, is pretty difficult. So I think at the end of the day, you know, it's really about outcomes. You know, if the Federal Reserve can generate good outcomes in terms of economic performance, that's sort of proof of the fact that their, you know, policy prescriptions were, you know, successful. I think it's going to be very hard for the Fed to articulate to the general public you know, how quantitative easing works and how it has, has to be effective. The second thing I think it's the Fed, though, and I think you rightly point to that, Fed really needs to be, you know, try to demystify, you know, the, you know what's going on behind the curtain. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the big mistakes during the great financial crisis was the Fed did stuff and they didn't really explain uh, in great detail, you know, why they were doing it and they didn't repeat their explanation. So I think it's really important that the Fed needs to, you know, speak in everyday language uh, to, 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 the, to, the, to the households and businesses uh, that are out there, uh, do it in, you know, non-academic, non-jargon terms, and do it over and over again, because people aren't, you know, paying attention all the time at a high level of, you know, 
frequency. So I think it's you know it's important that the Fed err on the side of overcommunicating. And the Fed has come a long long way. I mean, uh, you know, the press conferences that the chairman does uh, following every uh, FOMC meeting, you know, it's a huge innovation compared to what we had in the past. I mean, prior to 1994, the Fed Reserve actually did not announce when they were actually making a monetary policy change. People in the marketplace had to discern through the Fed's actions, right, their so open market interventions, whether they're diverting from what they would have done if policy was unchanged. And then they would infer that the Federal Reserve uh, was engaging in a change in monetary policy. So we're way past that now. We have a lot more transparency, which I think is a really good thing. Uh, Professor Dudley, I guess, uh, by the way, uh, Stephanie Kelton's book, I don't know if you read it, The Deficit Myths, but she, she actually quoted you a, a couple of times. And, and uh, anyways, we don't have to uh, go into that part. But uh, looking forward uh, in, into this new year, 2021, uh, a lot of people are giving very pessimistic projections about what's going to happen. Because if, let's say, the, the Democrats don't run the Georgia runoff today uh, in the next couple of days, uh, the Biden will have a kind of um, presidency in the House, but not the Senate majority. So we will likely see a replay of the Obama Tea Party drama. So basically from 2010 to 2016, little was done on the fiscal policy side. And, and the most of the economic stimulus mainly come from the monetary side. And Obama simply couldn't roll out any ambitious fiscal stimulus because the Senate Republicans and Biden likely won't be able to, to either. So he keeps saying well, we're gonna, $900 billion is just the first down payment. We're gonna get to $3 trillion. What do you see as that likelihood of that actually happening? And if the Fed's firepower has already been significantly constrained by the low interest rate and other factors we talked about in the uh, interview, can we expect more room for stimulus from the monetary policy side? Well, the good news is we got the 900 billion. And the good news is we're gonna have a strong economic recovery, I think in the second half of the year. So it's not clear to me that we're actually gonna need a whole new round of, of, of fiscal stimulus. I'd like to see more uh, just to help the people that have been most hurt by COVID. I mean, I think that's the part that, you know, I think there's a case for more fiscal stimulus. I don't think we're gonna see it though. And so I think what's gonna happen is at the end of the day, the burden of the pandemic is gonna fall just very unevenly on, on, on U.S. households, uh, and that's going to be you know unfair, and I think that's there's going to be a you know political consequence of that. So I think that we'll probably see you know uh, even if even if the Democrats you know take control of the Senate 50-50, it's still going to be hard to get much done uh, in the Senate. I think where you'll see though the Biden administration will make a lot of changes is where the president has uh, a lot of discretion. So on things like trade policy, you know climate change, uh, things of that nature. Uh, immigration policy, you know, I think that there's a lot that the, the Biden administration that will do differently than the Trump administration. Um, but, you know, the good news is we got the 900 billion. Uh, the good news is we have the vaccines. The good news is that they're being rolled out, obviously, too slowly. But, uh, you know, I think we're going to have a strong economic recovery second half of the year. And so, you know, I think we're going to make it to a better place. So, so you are somewhat optimistic, cautiously optimistic, like what else? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing that I feel badly about is just that the consequences of the pandemic are going to fall disproportionately on some people and they're not going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to be damaged. You know, that's where the scar is going to take place. You know, people have going to lost their job, lost their savings, lost their home, uh, been evicted from their apartments. Uh, and, you know, without more fiscal support, uh, you know, that is, it's not going to be easy to unwind that. And that's that's what, that's what the part that's unfair about all this. I guess the last policy related question I would ask you is on this topic of inequality, because a lot of people have said that, <laughs> and, and you personally said, the Fed's Main Street lending facility hasn't been too successful because not that many people wanted to take up it. Uh, whereas uh, the Fed support for big corporations have been very successful. And so a lot of people observe the anti-competitive effect going out, out of the, coming out of the pandemic because larger corporations have grown larger and they'll have more pricing power and monopoly and, and so on. So uh, we've also observed from the past few months, there was a lot of call for you know, Black Lives Matter and racial inequality. And they say that the Federal Reserve should do something about some of these things. So when it comes to this broader issue of inequality, economic inequality, racial inequality, cognitive inequality, however you call this, um, what do you see as to some of the policy uh, changes or, or regime shifts or, or new actions the Fed could do? 
Well, this you know the shift in the monetary policy framework, the inflation framework, to you know targeting two percent average inflation means that the Fed is going to be more aggressive in pushing uh, the economy to very high levels of employment, and pushing the economy to very high levels of employment are going to help uh, more disadvantaged people that are less strongly attached uh, to the labor market and to the jobs market. So I think that change in the monetary policy regime will help a bit. Problem the Fed has is that monetary policy is a very blunt instrument and really can't do much about issues like income inequality or you know education opportunity. Uh, those are things for the, for for Congress and the administration uh, to tackle. So it's it's not as if monetary policy can really address these particular set of issues. The tool is just too 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 blunt. The, the other problem that the Fed has, and this doesn't get much attention, is you know, I think the Fed would love to come up with a program that supported small businesses, but operationally, extraordinarily difficult to figure out how you would actually stand something like that up and make it effective. It's not like the Fed has, you know, the ability to reach out to millions of small businesses and evaluate their operations and lend money to them. You know, the, the ability to backstop the, you know, the corporate bond market is easy because you it's a big market. You have you know, credit rating agencies that you know, rate the obligations. So you can use those credit ratings as a you know, dividing line in terms of how you assess whether to buy or not to buy. Uh, so it's much easier to put, put into operation. I mean, you know, not enough attention is paid to you know, Fed limits on what the Fed can do because just operationally, it's, it's really difficult to do it uh, you know, quickly uh, and timely. Uh, and so some, some of these issues of income inequality in terms of what kind of facilities the Fed can stand up are due to that fact that it's very hard to reach out and have interactions with you know, millions of you know, small businesses where you've never had any contact before. There's no plumbing, there's no pipes, there's no contacts, there's no, you know, there's, not, there's, there's no people that are sitting at the Fed that are ready and able to evaluate the credit histories of these you know, firms and you know, so, you sort of have to you know, bootstrap the, what you have. And that's why you know, the, the pay, Paycheck Protection Program was you know, run through the Small Business Administration because that's where there was already was an infrastructure to interact with small businesses. So you build on what already exists. Uh, Professor Dudley, uh, this is the second time we're doing this interview. So the second time I'll ask you the same question. So the, the, the name for our show is Policy Punchline. What would be your punchline for, for this interview and going forward for the topics we've talked about? Punchline would be uh, 2022 is going to be a lot better. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we, we interviewed some other people. They were saying things are pretty good in Sweden or Norway or whatever. So they, yeah, uh, I, I guess we, we should be uh, optimistic going forward. Well, uh, th thank you so much for, for joining me today. Well, uh, that concludes this conversation with me and Professor Bill Dudley. He uh, is a senior research scholar at Princeton University's Center for Economic Policy Study and was the president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. He and I also had a previous conversation uh, that was recorded in April 2019 that you can find on our website, policypunchline.com, or listen uh, anywhere you may find it. It was another conversation about Professor Dudley's life and career. Uh, uh, so hopefully uh, those two conversations, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll like them. So. Thank you so much uh, for listening today. And Professor Dudley, thank you again for, for joining me today. Thank you.